So now let's start talking about the details of fluid status physiology. Because since, as you've seen, the evidence base is confusing at best, this is a space where you really need to understand the physiology. And as we'll talk about in part two of this lecture, if you for any moment, think at any point during your day, you are going to attempt to ultrasound somebody to try and figure out what their steward flatus is, you had better first understand the physiology. So let's be clear initially, though, that the goal here is not actually to get a PhD in physiology. It's really easy to go down this rabbit hole of fluid physiology that's I actually think is kind of cool and fascinating, but like, for the most part, not necessarily going to help you at the bedside to a point. And more importantly, probably just not realistic, not what we're trying to do here. So the goal here is not to go through every tiny little physiological detail and debate the merits of this versus that. Really, what the goal is, is to help construct a clinically useful mental model that allows you to better understand what is wrong with your patient and what to do about it. And I say this up front because I think a lot of people feel like there is a dichotomy between some kind of graph that looks like that, and I think most people look at that thing and are like, yep, nope, done with that. And then they're like, well, I can't figure that one out, so I guess 30 cc's per kilo for everybody. And I think there's probably a happy medium in between that diagram and the magic number of 30 cc's per kilo and following an algorithm because that diagram doesn't make sense to you. And here is my take on how to find that happy medium. And it is something that we're probably going to be talking about a decent amount more in this series that I'm calling heuristic physiology. And the way that I think about this is there's a degree of physiology you need to know to get a PhD, to pass the critical care boards. But then at the bedside, for most people in most situations, you can use what I think about as heuristic physiology, which is a degree of functional simplification, trying not to simplify too much, but also not too little, so that prioritizing formulating solutions to complex problems in real time which you do by focusing on the most relevant aspects of the problem. So that's what we're going to do. So step one in fluid status physiology, we're going to talk about the concept of fluid responsiveness. Now, I'm sure all of you have good or probably bad memories of the Starling curve from med school and residency and so forth and so on. Um, bottom line is that the idea of the Starling curve is that when you are on the steep part of the Starling curve. If you increase the preload, if you increase the left ventricular and diastolic volume, then your stroke volume will increase. And that keeps on happening until you get to the flat part of the curve, at which point giving additional preload will not increase your stroke volume. That is the concept of the Starling curve. And notice, and we'll talk about why later, I'm not saying giving additional fluid, I'm saying giving additional preload. Because as we'll talk about in a little bit, the way to increase preload may involve giving additional exogenous volume, but it may not. So that's the Starling curve. We all know and love. This is not news to you. Um, I think it's important, though, that we keep in mind that when we're thinking about the Starling curve, we don't just think about where somebody is on the curve. We don't just think about, are they on the flat part or the steep part? We also have to think about what curve are they on? And we got to think about this in two contexts. The most obvious one is that we have Mr. Smith 
And his heart is nice and squeezy, looking great. He's on that curve. As opposed to Mr. Jones, his heart, not as nice and squeezy. He's on that part of the curve. That I think is pretty obvious to all of us, right? That we have two different patients. They may have two different curves. Now, a thing to keep in mind that I think people often conflate is that you can't confuse the slope of the Starling curve with where the patient is on the Starling curve. Because just because Mr. Jones doesn't have a super great, nice looking slope of his Starling curve, he may still be on the steep part of that Starling curve. His preload may be such that he's actually still on the steep part, whereas Mr. Smith, just because he has a nice, fabulous, squeezy looking Starling curve, he actually may be on the flat part. So do not conflate the slope of the Starling curve with where the patient is on the Starling curve. And this is important, especially as we get more elderly people who probably have some cardiac dysfunction to not misunderstand and make those two variables into the same thing. So that's one thing, is that two different patients, two different Starling curves. Cool, obvious. The thing that I think we don't think about as much is that it is entirely possible that at 2 a.m. when Mr. Smith presented last night, he came in with that Starling curve. Then, you know, at 11 p.m. now, he's had a bunch of sepsis, maybe some sepsis-induced cardiomyopathy. We've done a bunch of stuff where we've started pressors. We've maybe started other pressors. We've given fluid. Who knows what's happened to him between now and then? So he could have been on a totally different Starling curve at this point. And so this is especially to people who are really into ultrasound. And don't get me wrong. I love ultrasound. When you do an initial echo on that patient, you cannot assume that that applies 12 hours from now. Because within the same patient, you may have a different slope of your Starling curve at different times depending on what you're doing. And I think this is especially relevant in septic shock, or we see this a lot in the cardiothoracic ICU um, after maybe somebody's had a really long case, um, really long pump time. They come out and initially their cardiac output, their cardiac index, their squeeze, it looks amazing. It looks fabulous. Their cardiac index is five. Until you realize that's because they're super vasodilated and their SVR is like 350 and any heart can push against no pressure. The same thing can often happen in a septic patient where they come in, they're super vasodilated. So their heart looks fabulous because they're not trying to push against any pressure because they're all vasodilated, distributive, shocky. Then what happens when you maybe give them some norepi? You tighten things up a little bit. Now, all of a sudden, that heart has to push against an actual blood pressure, at which point you reveal that maybe actually it's not working as well as you thought. So again, not only can you have different slopes of different curves between different patients, you can have different slopes and different curves in the same patient at different times. Now, the core question, though, of fluid responsiveness is really about identifying where you are there. Are you on the flat part? Are you on the steep part? Now, the first thing that we just have to address, because I think that this is still a thing in many parts of the universe, is what does not answer that question? And it turns out that what does not answer this question, and one of the things that we can, I don't know, maybe one of the most definitive things we can say about the research into fluids is that CVP does not answer this question. And this is a case of, I do not think it means what you think it means. Yeah, favorite movie? Love this movie? Sorry, sidetracked. Anyway, point being, CVP 
is actually quite useful in certain situations, mainly in situations when I'm dealing with right heart failure and I'm trying to think about my CVP in the context of my PA catheter numbers. But if I'm trying to figure out fluid resuscitation, I have no idea what CVP means, and it certainly doesn't mean what we used to think it means. So CVP, not useful. Bottom line, a number of studies have looked at this now. They all conclude that the AUC of CVP for fluid responsiveness is terrible. It just sucks. And it doesn't even matter if you're like, well, what if they have a really low or maybe a really high and you break it up that way? Basically, you can cut this data in a million ways. CVP not helping us. Now, because a picture is worth a thousand words, I just included this picture, which I love, which is a beautiful demonstration of no effect whatsoever and total randomness, which is from one of the papers looking at CVP versus blood volume. Yeah, doesn't seem to have anything to do with anything. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, we're not really using PA catheters anymore, right? I mean, we're not really doing that. It used to be the case, maybe 15 years ago, that you had sepsis, you had a surge criteria, everybody got a central line, everybody was checking a CVP, we would do things to target certain CVPs. We're not doing that anymore. But the reason I bring this up is because the other day, um, I had a resident say to me, well, you know, we're transducing a CVP, but I've just been totally ignoring that because like we all know that that doesn't mean anything. Pause. But don't worry because I ultrasounded their IVC and it was less than two centimeters. So I gave them some fluids. Okay, here's the thing. If you don't believe in CVP, then IVC is measuring the exact same thing. You don't believe in IVC either. You just don't know it. They're the same thing, people. You're just doing it in different ways. Now, as we'll get into in part two of this talk, looking at respiratory variation is probably more helpful than looking at diameter. Maybe. There's a big maybe there. But even so, a lot of us use IVC. A lot of us will go in, measure the diameter, and be like, ta-da! Those same people are like, oh, CVP is nonsense. Of course that doesn't work. So the reason I am putting this in here is that we don't have all the literature and evidence in the world on IVC yet. We're still working through that. But functionally, IVC diameter, you're measuring the exact same thing. We have a lot of evidence about CVP. It tells you nothing. So don't get overly caught up in that IVC measurement. It's probably not helping you. Okay. I think it's important, though, to understand why CVP isn't a measure of fluid responsiveness. Because what's interesting about the CVP story is that, yes, yes, we have evidence now that that actually has nothing to do with anything. But even aside from all the evidence, even if we didn't have all of this data telling us that CVP is kind of useless for predicting fluid responsiveness, the physiology just doesn't make any sense. The whole concept that CVP would be useful to predict fluid responsiveness in the first place is completely flawed. And we're going to go through this exercise because I think it's a useful exercise to understand what we actually do mean by fluid responsiveness. So here is the bottom line. The bottom line is that you cannot conflate the concept of preload with the concept of preload responsiveness. They are two very different things. Let me show you why. Let's say we got two starling curves. We have Mr. Jones and Mr. Smith. We have our preload on the x-axis, we have our stroke volume on the y-axis. Let's say we measure preload. We measure, say, CVP in both Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones, and we find that it is at point A. Let's call it, I don't know, 8. 
okay? So the problem with doing that is that for a given CVP, for a given measure of preload, if we look at it for Mr. Jones, cool, he's still on the steep part of that Starling curve. So for that CVP, I would conclude, daha, he's fluid responsive, his CVP is only eight, because for that CVP, Mr. Smith is still on the steep part of the Starling curve. But what about Mr. Jones? Not so much. With that exact same CVP, or IVC measurement, Mr. Jones, it turns out, is actually not on the steep part of the Starling curve anymore. So just measuring this one snapshot of preload in time doesn't tell me anything about where that patient is on their Starling curve. So I just told you how not to measure fluid responsiveness. Now let's talk about how should you measure fluid responsiveness. And the idea is as follows. It's not enough to just measure a single point in preload. That won't get you very far. What you actually need to do is challenge the Starling curve. You need to challenge this relationship and see how your curve responds. And so in order to do this, rather than looking at preload, rather than looking at the x-axis of this curve, we actually instead have to look at the y-axis. We cannot get this information from just looking at preload. We actually have to look at stroke volume. But we can't just look at stroke volume. It's not that simple. We have to challenge this relationship with increasing preload. So this is how this works. Let's say we have these two patients, Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones. And we are at preload point A. Then we maybe add some fluids, tighten up the vasculature, and take them from preload point A to preload point B. Now, by doing that, we then see how they respond looking at the y-axis, looking at the stroke volume. So we see how each of these patients actually responded to that change from preload from point A to point B, from increasing the preload. And then, if we do that, and we now see how they responded to the change in preload, we can now see by looking on the y-axis, by looking at the stroke volume, we can now tell the difference that Mr. Smith is a fluid responder because he significantly changed his stroke volume in response to that fluid bolus, whereas Mr. Jones is not. So it's only by challenging this Starling relationship with a preload challenge and then looking at the stroke volume, now we can differentiate Mr. Smith from Mr. Jones. Whereas just looking at point A, that preload, that did not allow us to differentiate the fluid responsiveness of Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones. Now, this right here is one of the things that actually makes this so complicated to assess at the bedside. Because you can see how this starts getting complicated, right? Because if you really truly want to assess fluid responsiveness at the bedside, you need to do two things which are actually not that straightforward. One, you need to give the patient a preload challenge of a suitable volume. And two, you then need to be able to measure somehow the stroke volume in real time. So this is complicated. And a single measure of CVP or IVC diameter doesn't help. Measuring IVC diameter is equivalent to comparing Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones just on point A. Okay, now we're going to talk about another concept. Um, we're going to talk about now the idea of fluid tolerance. And I think the most intuitive and easy way to explain the concept of fluid tolerance is that this is never a chest x-ray that you want to see on your patient after giving fluids. Um, 
But it turns out that we can actually get more sophisticated about it than that. I mean, I think intuitively people have this idea that you don't want to like give a bunch of fluids and the next thing you know that's happening. Of course, sure. But how do we talk about it in a quantitative way? How do we be just as thoughtful about the physiology as we are about fluid responsiveness? So we just talked about how understanding fluid responsiveness, that concept, it's all about looking at the relationship between preload and stroke volume. Fluid tolerance, on the other hand, is now, rather than looking at the relationship between preload and stroke volume, we are now going to look at the relationship between preload and tissue edema. And it turns out it looks something like this. And there's a very important error right there. Why? Because one of the key things to understand about this relationship is that this curve has a very important inflection point. So how does this play out clinically, that very important inflection point in the relationship describing preload and tissue edema? Well, let's say that we have our patient. That is the curve for this particular patient that describes the relationship between preload and tissue edema. Cool. Okay. We're at preload point A. Let's say we take them from preload point A to preload point B. Note that by doing so, in this particular case, by going from A to B, we are still on the flat part of the curve. We are still before the inflection point of that curve. And when we're on the flat part, when we're before that inflection point, giving them a preload challenge, giving them more preload, really causes a very minimal increase in tissue edema. But now look what happens. If we give them the same amount of preload challenge, say we gave them 500 cc's, let's give them another 500 cc's, except now, rather than starting at point A, we are starting at point C. And note that point C is after the inflection point of that curve. So we start at point C. We give them the exact same amount of fluid. We give them 500 cc's, taking them from point C to point D. What you will now notice, though, is because now we are on the other side of that inflection point, what have we done? By giving the exact same amount of fluids, we have caused a precipitous increase in tissue edema for the exact same amount of fluids. Because now we are after the inflection point in that curve. So tissue edema, very important. Now, it turns out that just like with our Starling curve, Different patients can have different curves on the curve that describes preload versus tissue edema. Different patients can have different Starling curves. They can also have differences in the curves that describe this concept of fluid tolerance. How does that play out? So let's look at two different patients. Let's look at what happens if we have Miss Hall. And then if you shift the curve to the left a bit, and that's what Mrs. Brown, that's what her curve looks like. What does this mean? How does this play out? What does it mean if I have Mrs. Hall, whose curve is nice and over there, then I have Miss Brown, whose curve is shifted to the left all the way over that way? Well, this is how this plays out. What happens is if we pick any given preload, let's say we're going to go to preload point A. Fabulous. For the same preload, we can call it a CVP, an ICBC diameter, doesn't matter. By shifting the curve to the left, look what we've done. For the same preload, for Miss Hall, she is still on the flat part. That preload hits her curve when she is still before the inflection point. But look what happened to Miss Brown. That 
preload. That single point of preload actually hits Ms. Brown's curve after her inflection point. So the exact same preload number treats Ms. Hall and Ms. Brown very, very differently. They're going to respond very, very differently to that same preload. One of them is going to have relatively minimal tissue edema. The other one, you're now past that part of the curve. And so by giving more fluids, you're now going to precipitously increase the amount of tissue edema they're having. So again, just like the Starling curve, you can have two different patients that have different fluid tolerance curves, but within the same patient over time, this is also something that can change. So let's now talk about the factors that cause this curve to shift to the left. I think we're all fairly comfortable with the idea of the Starling curve. We're all comfortable with the idea of heart failure causes the slope of the curve to be different and left ventricular systolic function and blah, blah, blah. It's a bit more complicated than that. But yeah, I think we all basically have a understanding that left ventricular function has a lot to do with the slope of the Starling curve and differences between different patient Starling curves, right? I think people have less of a good understanding of what factors determine the position of the fluid tolerance curve, the curve describing the relationship between preload and tissue edema. What shifts this curve to the left? What causes you to have worsening tissue edema for the same amount of preload? There's a whole bunch of different things, but the three key ones that are important to you when you're thinking about this sort of heuristic acute physiology are as follows. One, increased capillary permeability. Two, decreased oncrotic pressure. And three, increased hydrostatic pressure. So first, increased capillary permeability. This is probably the most common and important one. The idea is that for the same amount of preload, for the same amount of pressure, for the same amount of that sort of left ventricular in diastolic pressure, you're getting a higher tissue edema when your vessels are leaky. It kind of makes sense, right? You can give the same amount of pressure to a non-leaky, nice, tight vessel that doesn't leak anything, and then you take that same amount of pressure, you give it to a super leaky vessel, it's leaking all over the place, causing, oh wait, more tissue edema. So when does this happen? Well, all the time. This can happen systemically or selectively. So turns out, you know what one of the main pathophysiologic mechanisms of sepsis is? is glycocalyx injury, increased capillary permeability, and significant, significant abnormalities of the capillaries all throughout the body. And so sepsis itself can cause this script to curve to the left just by having sepsis. Anything that causes SIRS will do this. Pancreatitis. So this is a huge problem in pancreatitis. Fluid resuscitation in patients with bad pancreatitis, nightmare and a half. It's very, very challenging. And one of the reasons for that is that even aside from the fact that they're just third spacing like mad into their abdomen, pancreatitis is a very high sirs kind of condition. You just have this in systemic inflammatory response that has nothing to do with infection necessarily, but significantly increases your capillary permeability. Now, this can also happen on an organ level. For example, in ARDS, um, this happens in the lungs. You can come in 
And let's say that you were totally healthy or doing okay, then had a massive aspiration event, and 10 hours later, you have full-blown arts. You're not infected yet from your aspiration pneumonia. That's not what's happening. But your lungs, they're really pissed off. They just got this huge aspiration load. They are not happy. They're in full-blown arts. And you now have a huge amount of increased capillary permeability selectively in the lungs. Now, often it turns out that patients with ARTS, or more recently COVID, also may have some systemic SERSI septic physiology that you have to take into account. Often those are the patients who are hypotensive, and often those are the same patients that we are encouraged to give fluids in. We have some decent evidence here in ARDS that in this particular situation, when you take that nice preload and tissue edema curve, that nice fluid tolerance curve, you have ARTS, you shift that curve to the left, Giving a bunch of fluids to the lungs where that curve is shifted to the left, not a super clever idea. So that's probably the most important one. The other things are the decreased oncotic pressure. Um, depending on where you are practicing in the world, you will either see that mainly in patients who have liver failure. Those guys, they come in, their albumin's like half of nothing, and they just don't have a lot of oncotic pressure so that you can keep things in the veins. So you see that in liver patients, but you also see this in malnourished patients. So you'll sometimes see this in the little old lady from the nursing home. You see this all the time in a lot of, for example, maybe some of the studies that we were just talking about fluids and how some of the studies in resource-poor settings were really clearly seeing worsening mortality with fluids. Does this have anything to do with it? I don't know. But malnutrition, starvation you're getting decreased oncotic pressure. You're going to shift that curve to the left. Liver patients, you have the same problem. Finally, increased hydrostatic pressure. Um, and I'm putting this in there because I really want to differentiate that from left ventricular systolic failure, because I think that we all tend to just sort of think about that concept as having the only thing to do with fluids and nothing really else. But you can have a totally fine left ventricle and go crazy fluid loading somebody, and just by giving the massive volume resuscitation, cause increased hydrostatic pressure, right? We can also have other problems. We can have renal failure. Your heart's fine, but your kidney's not. You're not getting rid of any, any, any fluid. So you have increased hydrostatic pressure. And another one here that I like to think about in this category is the idea of diastolic dysfunction. And I sort of mentally put it in this category. It's a little bit messy, but it's convenient for me to put it there because on ultrasound, if you have a patient with diastolic dysfunction, you're going to think their heart's fine because it's going to be all nice and squeezy. But here's the thing about diastolic dysfunction. Diastolic dysfunction significantly increases your hydrostatic pressure, especially your pressure into the lungs. Why? Because your ventricle is stiff. And so diastolic dysfunction patients in the heart have a very steep pressure volume curve, whereby even a little change, even a little too much fluid will cause it all to back up and give you a whole bunch of edema. And these are the patients that are just really annoying to fluid resuscitate. These are the ones where you're like, I just gave them like 250 cc's, it's a can of Coke, and all of a sudden they have pulmonary edema. Or on the other end, you're like, I just diuresed them a little bit and now they're hypotensive. So they're the patients who often have those nightmare window for fluids that you just can't seem to get it right. When I have a patient like that, I think about diastolic dysfunction.
Now, one of the things that I want to point out here is that systolic dysfunction is not on this list. We tend to think about, oh, tissue edema, we mean pulmonary edema and CHF and something, something, something. Note that the factors that determine the fluid tolerance curve, where that curve is, how that curve is acting, are different than the factors that determine your Starling curve. These are two independent things. They are not the same. And this is very important because now what we're going to talk about next is the fact that you must in your head separate the concept of fluid responsiveness from fluid tolerance. Because when you're trying to really be sophisticated about fluid status physiology, what that means is you need to integrate your understanding of the physiology of both of these concepts. So now we're going to talk about how you're going to think about fluid status physiology as a whole, how you're going to integrate these concepts of fluid responsiveness and fluid tolerance, and you're integrating them, you're not conflating them. I find the easiest way to do this is to just think about these two graphs right next to each other. We have our fluid responsiveness curve that tells us about the relationship between preload and stroke volume. Then we have our fluid tolerance curve that tells us about the relationship between preload and tissue edema. On the fluid responsiveness curve, you want to be on the steep part of that curve. You want to be sort of, in fact, just maybe right after the steep part of that curve because that steep part of the curve is where giving fluid will improve their stroke volume. On the fluid tolerance curve, on the other hand, you want to be on the flat part of the curve. You want to be before that inflection point because you want to be on the part of the curve where giving a little more fluid doesn't cause a big increase in tissue edema. So fluid responsiveness, you want to be on that flat, on that steep part. Fluid tolerance, you want to be on that flat part. Now, in reality, I don't even just like to think of these two curves next to each other. You got to think of them as being on top of each other. Because only by thinking about these two curves on the same graph can you really fully wrap your head around the idea that you cannot, cannot, cannot conflate fluid responsiveness with fluid tolerance. Or to say it another way, just because your patient is fluid responsive, just because, say, they increase their stroke volume, they increase their blood pressure with a fluid bolus, that does not necessarily mean that they are also fluid tolerant. Let me show you. Let's say we have this patient. We're at preload point A. Okay, cool. We increase their preload to preload point B. Wonderful. If we do that, what we have done is we have actually done something pretty good on the startling curve. They were still on the very steep portion of the curve, and they had a big increase in their stroke volume on the Starling curve. Look at that. We gave them some preload. We gave them some volume, whatever we did to increase the preload. At that particular A to B, fabulous, good, wonderful, big increase in stroke volume. And look what we did to the fluid intolerance curve. Okay. Well, we're before the inflection point of the curve. So giving that same amount of preload, we didn't really increase the tissue edema all that much. So we have this particular patient with these particular curves, taking them from preload point A to point B. This patient is fluid responsive because they increase their stroke volume. They are also fluid tolerant because they did not significantly increase their tissue edema because they're still hanging out on that flat part of the curve. What happens if we just have a very slightly different patient? 
And we're starting at a slightly different preload pace. We just change a couple of minor variables, but look what happens now. Let's say we are going to start and we're starting at preload point C. And then we're going to give additional preload. We take them to preload point D. Well, they're still preload responsive. So we still have an increase in preload. Wonderful. High five. So we can say, yes, this patient is volume responsive. But look what you just did to their fluid tolerance curve. You are past the inflection point on that curve. And so for the same amount of preload, yes, your patient is fluid responsive, but you just gave them a huge increase in tissue edema. This is a patient at this preload where they are fluid responsive, but they are not fluid tolerant. These two things do not always go together. So when I think about what I'm trying to accomplish with fluid resuscitation in a patient, this is the way I see it. I think about it like I'm trying to find this sweet spot. I am trying to find a spot where I've maybe maximized what I can get out of preload with my starling curve. I've sort of gone as high as I can go on my starling curve while still staying on the flat part of the curve for my fluid tolerance curve. Mentally, I am trying to say, can I find that sweet spot? Now, it turns out that that's great if you can approach it that way. And in a lot of patients, I find that a helpful way to think about it. But you also have to accept that the following is true. Some critically ill patients, there's just no sweet spot. They just don't have one. There is just no place where these two curves intersect in a way that you can sort of give preload, have a preload, where you're not either not making them fluid responsive or they're not fluid tolerant. And so you'll have these patients where you just can't win. You give them fluids and they just get tissue edema everywhere immediately, but they're still preload responsive. So you keep giving tissue fluids, but then they go into pulmonary edema and you have to intubate. So then you stop giving fluids, but now they're really, really hypotensive and on and on and on. And so super, super sick, critically ill patients, especially ones who just are chronically ill, maybe they're liver patients, maybe they're malnourished, maybe they're just in this high state of inflammatory, maybe they're vasoplegic, whatever it is, for some reason, they have such bad dysfunction that they just don't really have a sweet spot. And in those patients, it's like many things in critical care, you can't have everything you want. I'm not going to tell you what to do in those patients, whether you should give volume or not give volume, because that's actually a complicated question. But the point being is that you have to critically evaluate in my patient in front of me, what's the lesser evil? What is my biggest problem? Am I more concerned about a fluid tolerance issue in this patient? Am I more concerned about giving vasopressors? And it depends. Different patients are different. And in certain patients, like if I have a little old lady who uh, I really, she's 90 and she has horrible COPD and ILD and every pulmonary disease and heart disease and everything known to man. And I'm like, oh man, if I intubate her, oh, I'm never going to get her extubated. It's going to be a nightmare. I really, really am concerned about her fluid tolerance curve. So I might prioritize that. Let's say, on the other hand, um, I'm in the surgical ICU. And I have a patient that just got uh, plastic surgery, just took them, and they have a big free flap, maybe. I really, really, really don't want to give that patient pressors. And this is a young patient. They can probably handle some pulmonary edema. Frankly, even if I have to intubate them, no big deal. So I may make a different decision depending on the patient. So I can't tell you, give you a nice algorithm about what to do with every patient. 
But you have to at least be able to understand what the actual problem is, what the actual situation you're dealing with is, before you can figure out how to address it in the patient in front of you. Now, there's another piece to this. Because, as you now can suspect, it's complicated. And we actually have just been talking about preload in the last two sections, as if it were just one thing, as if basically preload is equivalent to fluid bolusing. Turns out it's not. It turns out, to the surprise of no one, again, it's complicated. So when you think about preload, it's easy to think about it looking at these curves like saying, all right, preload equals more intravascular volume equals fluid bolus, done, call it a day. Turns out it's complicated. So we're going to start with a very, very simple system. We have a heart thing and we have a vascular thing dumping blood into the heart, basically. Bottom line is to simplify it to the maximal degree without making it so simple it's useless. This is how I think about it. The things that determine preload are the interaction between the filling pressure, which is pushing fluid this way, and we can call that something the, called the mean circulatory filling pressure. Don't worry about that. We'll just call it the filling pressure for the moment. And the back pressure, which we can call the right atrial pressure. But forget about those words at the bottom of the screen right now. They're mostly just here to trick and confuse you. Really, simply, we have a filling pressure that's trying to push blood into the heart, and we have a back pressure that it needs to push against. That's the simplest way to think about this. Um, normally, this is where somebody would draw a venous return curve. Um, I have found that venous return curves are actually quite interesting and I like them, but for the most part, they are mostly here to confuse people. So we're going to try and get the same concepts across without actually trying to explain venous return curves at this moment. But big picture, preload, we're talking about our filling pressure, pushing fluid in, and our back pressure. And that pressure gradient is what's determining our preload at the end of the day. So we are mostly at this moment going to be concerned about the filling pressures. So we're going to have another graph now. So now on the x-axis, instead of preload, we have intravascular volume. Because I'm really trying to get you to separate the idea that preload is all about just the quantity of fluid that you're throwing around. So we're now going to look at the relationship between intravascular volume and filling pressure. And it's an interesting relationship. It looks something like this. This curve is flat, 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 flat for a while. Then all of a sudden it gets steep. Why is that? This is why. So if you're thinking about your filling pressures, we're thinking about where blood is sitting in the body. Well, blood is sitting in blood vessels. That's what it likes to do. So your blood's sitting in the blood vessels, and the overall pressure is what's sort of driving that filling pressure into the heart, right? So in the body, most of our blood vessels, most of the real estate here is actually veins. Most of the volume is actually in the venous system. Now, the thing about veins as opposed to arteries is that veins are kind of floppy. They kind of look like this. Veins like to collapse. They're not like strong muscular arteries that just, you know, sort of stay up, veins like to collapse. And here's the interesting thing about this, is that if you take a vein that's totally collapsed and give it a little miss volume, give it a little more volume, 
you make it less collapsed, you haven't actually changed the pressure in that vein because you've taken it from floppy to more volume, but still floppy. You're now not having that transmural pressure of the vascular wall that's actually what's going to cause the increase in pressure when you give an increase in volume. So this plat part on the curve, this is where your veins, where again, you're keeping most of the blood in the body, are fully collapsed. And if you give more volume on this flat part of the curve, you will have changed your filling pressures not at all. You haven't changed the pressure until we now have enough that our vein is fully expanded. Now we switch to the steep part of the curve. And on this steep part of the curve, now we see, now there is a relationship between I give more volume, I get more pressure. We have a name for this that you probably heard in med school that you may have hated at the time. This is what we call the unstressed versus the stressed volume. The unstressed volume is all of the volume that's sitting in your blood vessels that you can't do anything with because it's just sort of sitting in there. It's not under pressure. And remember, we don't talk about filling volumes. We talk about filling pressures, right? So functionally, you can't use that volume in a really productive way if it's not under pressure. So the unstressed volume, you can't really use. The stressed volume is now the volume that is under pressure. That is the volume that you can use. Why am I telling you all this? You probably learned this in med school, hated it the first time, tried as hard as you could to forget it, and I'm bringing all this up again. Lots of issues, PTSD maybe. Why? There's a reason for this. Here's the deal. So one way to do this, because, you know, I'm on the sort of unstressed volume part and I want to go to the stress volume part, I could just like go crazy and give a bunch more fluids and I would get there. But there's another way to think about this. Let's say instead I start doing something like, say, giving norepi that adjusts my vasomotor tone. Let's say I start doing something that moves the inflection point of this curve to the left, where basically I'm just tightening everything up. So rather than being a super floppy, everything's now just kind of floppy. So at a lower volume, I now hit the point where my vein is totally distended, fully distended, and now we start seeing that relationship between giving more volume equals more filling pressure. And so basically what I have just done is I have increased my stressed volume. I've basically recruited some unstressed volume into stressed volume. And so now it looks more like this. Now I have more stressed volume, more volume I could use. Now, in order to do that, in order to go through that process where I take some unstressed volume and I tighten everything up and I recruit it, and so now I've turned some of my unstressed volume into stressed volume, and remember that stressed volume is the stuff that you can actually use to drive your filling pressures, how can I best do that? Is it the most productive thing to just like give so much fluids that I distend things? Oh, wait, there's probably another better way to do this. I could give some pressors. I could give a little low dose nor epi. Now, this is true in healthy patients. Um, and what you'll see is there's some really interesting physiology studies in like healthy young people with exercise. And what you'll find is that the sympathetic surge that you get from exercise 
can actually increase your stressed volume just as much as a pretty solid fluid bolus. And so the idea is rather than adding more fluid to the system, you're just using what you got already in a more productive way. You're functionally auto-fluid bolusing the patient because you're taking volume that they couldn't really use effectively before, and you're recruiting it and converting it into volume that now they can use to drive venous return. And so this is why we cannot think of preload as simply how much fluid you flood your patient with. It's not that simple. Because changing their vasomotor tone has significant effects on their stress volume and therefore on their preload. And so when I'm thinking about sepsis, sepsis is a form of distributive shock. Now, can you have simultaneous sepsis distributive shock and hypovolemic component? Sure. If you're massively vomiting, if you're massively third spacing, if you have cholera, absolutely. It's totally possible to have sepsis and distributive shock as well as hypovolemic shock all at the same time. But if we're saying that septic shock physiology is mainly driven by vasodilation, what happens? Well, when you vasodilate, you've just done the opposite of what we want to do. You've actually taken stressed volume, vasodilated all your vessels, vasodilated all your veins, and you've converted now stressed volume into unstressed volume, and you don't want to do that. And so a strategy that to a lot of people is starting to make a lot of sense is saying, okay, I may need to increase my preload. I have a patient who's, okay, I you know, looked at them and I think they're volume responsive. So one way that I can respond to that clinical piece of information where, you know, I think this patient seems volume responsive is I can say, okay, well, that means I'm going to literally give them more volume. Or I can say, you know, I wonder if instead of just straight up giving more volume into the system, if I could just recruit more of the volume that's already in the system by giving a little bit of norepi and turning my unstressed volume into stressed volume. And so this is another reason why it sort of concerns me that we're very incentivized to give fluids as opposed to pressors. Because, you know, the data on early pressors, it's all over the place. We're still trying to work through this, but thinking about it conceptually, when you're thinking about increasing your preload, you cannot simply think about it as an issue of how much fluids you give. You also have to think about it as what's happening with the ratio of your stressed volume to unstressed volume and can you recruit. Okay, so that is fluid physiology, a sort of heuristic approach. There's a lot of details that we just glossed over. Um, in part two of this lecture, um, we are later going to talk about, that's all very well and good, cool physiology, or maybe not, whatever, but I think so. So cool physiology, but uh, I actually have to go take care of patients tomorrow, so what do I do with all of that at the bedside? And so what we're going to talk about in part two of this lecture is how you take your understanding of physiology, combine it with clinical data that you gather at the bedside, and put it together to come up with a surely imperfect, but the best I can come up with, approach to thinking about fluid management decisions in the thoughtful way you can at the bedside based in an understanding of this physiology. So that'll be for next time. Thank you all for listening. and. Take care.